All right, before we uh, officially jump into this new teaching series, I wanted to take just a couple of, of minutes and talk about something significant coming up very soon, and that is our baptism weekend, uh, November 17th and 18th, baptism weekend. We do this two weekends a year, only two weekends a year, so it's kind of a big deal. Um, and so, so, so what exactly is baptism? Baptism is a way to publicly declare your faith in Jesus, okay? So it's a way to show that you are a follower of Jesus. Baptism is not a way to get to heaven. It's not a way to get in relationship with God. It's not a requirement for salvation. The Bible tells us that we are saved by repenting of our sin and placing our trust in Jesus, period. We are saved by faith, not by any work we do, including baptism. Now, having said that, the Bible also asserts that baptism is really, really, really important. It's a very significant step in the life of a believer. Jesus commands anyone who has placed their faith in him, anyone who is a follower of his, to be baptized, to publicly declare your faith in Christ. And so if you have never been baptized as a believer in Jesus, I encourage you to be baptized the weekend of November 17th and 18th. Maybe you've recently placed your faith in Christ or maybe you come to realize you truly do believe in Jesus, or maybe you've known the Lord for years but have never been baptized, or maybe you were baptized as an infant, as a baby, um, which was more of a reflection of your parents' desire for you than of your own faith. But now that you've placed your faith in him, it's important for you to be baptized, to publicly demonstrate your commitment to him. So if you've never been baptized as a believer in Jesus, what are you waiting for? Okay. Uh, why not obey Jesus in this way? There's a, a required orientation on Thursday, November 8th. Details about all that are in the, in the newsletter. And let me mention, we're not going to be doing spontaneous baptisms that weekend. So we want to make sure everyone understands what they're doing and why. And so that's why we're having this required orientation on the 8th. Okay, so today we are beginning a new teaching series for the, for the next several weeks leading up to Christmas. We're going to be focusing in on this incredible story that's found in the Old Testament. The story is given to us in a book called Ruth. Now, we're calling this series Stubborn Love because the focus of the book of Ruth is on this particular, one particular Hebrew word, hesed. Hesed, that's the Hebrew, um, is, is the Hebrew word is, is hesed. hesed. Hesed is a Hebrew word for love, but it describes a particular kind of love that we kind of miss when we just translate it love. It's describing a particular kind of love, a love that is loyal and kind and committed and tenacious, even stubborn, if you will. So what's fascinating about the book of Ruth is that this kind of love is demonstrated by multiple characters in this story. So the book is named after a woman named Ruth, who is an incredible model of sacrificial love. And she meets a total stud named Boaz, who also models love, this kind of love, in amazing variety of ways, right? I mean, when I grow up, I want to be like Boaz, okay? Uh, this guy is really cool, as we'll see. And then there's this woman named Naomi, whom we're going to meet today. Naomi experiences unbelievable tragedy, and yet she keeps looking to God. She keeps looking to God. So she too demonstrates this stubborn, tenacious love. And of course, this story ultimately reveals in a beautiful way the Hesed love of God. A God who is able to use tragedy and difficulty and hardship to somehow orchestrate an incredible plan, not just for Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, but as we're going to see at the end of this story, his plan also includes us. 
It includes us. So let's dive in. Verse 1, Ruth 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now this sentence is critically important because it gives us the historical context for when this story happens. The days when the judges ruled describes a period of time when God's people, the Israelites, were in a state of absolute chaos, okay? So years earlier, they had been slaves in Egypt and God had rescued them and gave them this land that he had promised to Abraham, right? there, the father of their nation. He had promised this land centuries before. So now that Joshua, he leads the people into this promised land. And you would think that everything would be wonderful, but it wasn't. In fact, here's a summary from the book of Judges, which is the book right before the book of Ruth, chapter two. Check out this summary. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. So the entire book, this is just a, smart, a short summary of the entire book of Judges. It's this vivid and disturbing picture of what happens when God's people start drifting from him and they start worshipping other gods. There are brutal conflicts and horrible violence and horrific sexual immorality in the book of Judges. It is not pretty. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes and it resulted in sort of this Las Vegas spring break, Israel gone wild sort of mess, okay? Which is exactly where the story of Ruth begins. In the days when the judges ruled... And the Israelites are right in the middle of that. And it is this backdrop that helps make the story of Ruth shine so brightly because it shows us that even in the mess, there are still good people who are trying and wanting to follow God. But before we get to these amazing people, uh, we're introduced to a guy who is not so amazing, okay? So let me read Ruth verses 1 to 3. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab to live there. Okay, so we're introduced to this family of four, mom, dad, two little kids, and they are thrown into a very difficult situation. A famine hits the land. It's hard for us in our society to begin to feel the weight of this, you know, empty grocery stores, um, a drought that results in no crops to harvest. I mean, we, we, can, we can't really imagine that in our, in our nation, you know, thankfully, but that was their situation. And so in this difficult circumstance, the father, Elimelech, makes a very significant decision. He decides to take his family and move to Moab, which was about 50 miles away. Now, at one level, this decision makes total sense. If Moab has food, let's go there. No brainer. I need to feed my family. Let's head to Moab. But from our vantage point in the story, 
we immediately realize this was not a good decision. Life begins to fall apart for this family at multiple levels. Look with me at verse 3. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So Naomi finds herself in an absolutely desperate situation. A woman who was widowed in that culture would have no means of supporting herself. She would rely upon her children. And yet in Naomi's case, her children, her two sons, had also died. And so she is left in this absolutely desperate situation. So what we see here is that Elimelech's initial decision ultimately had a huge and devastating impact upon his family. Now, obviously, Elimelech didn't know he was going to die, um, and he didn't know that his two sons were going to die. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to play armchair quarterback here, uh, you know, after the fact and criticize him for dying. You should have known, you know. I'm not going to do that. But what I do want to explain, <clears throat> I do want us to explore here what the author wants us to see from our vantage point, and that is why this was a bad decision. Why this was a bad decision. And it had nothing to do with Elimelech's death or his son's death. What, 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 what these fir first few verses of, of Ruth tell us is that Elimelech's decision was a bad decision because it lacked two crucial elements. And they are the same elements that often contribute to our bad decisions. Decisions that are not ultimately helpful for us or our family. Decisions that actually remove us from the blessings of God. So the first, the first element that Elimelech was missing in his decision-making process is what I would refer to as spiritual wisdom. <clears throat> spiritual wisdom. As I mentioned a moment ago, from one perspective, Elimelech's decision makes total sense, right? My family is starving. Moab has food. We need to go to Moab makes total sense at one level, but, but there is more to this story than that. The writer of Ruth specifically mentions Moab four times in the first six verses, which tells us that there is something, there is something about Moab that we need to dig into. So if we look at the previous book, the book of Judges, we learn a few important things about Moab. For one thing, Israel and Moab are not friends. They are not friends. The king of Moab tried to curse the Israelites years earlier. He then subjected them to slavery and oppression for 18 years. So there is tension in this relationship between these two nations. But not only that, we're also told in Judges chapter 10, verse 6, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab. See, the primary god of Moab, small g, but the primary god of Moab was named Chemosh, C-H-E-M-O-S-H, Chemosh, who later is referred to in the Bible as an abomination. Followers of Chemosh were involved in human sacrifices and sexual immorality. Yucky, yucky stuff, okay? So Moab is not a good place. And all the original hearers of this story would have known that. 
They would have known that. Sort of like Las Vegas today. Okay, so these readers, they, these readers, the original readers hearing this story, they would have, they, they would have, they, they knew all about Moab and what it represented. So when they, they initially heard this story that Elimelech chose to take his family from Bethlehem and move them to Moab, every one of them would be thinking, what? You have got to be kidding. Why would he do that? Why would he remove his family from a spiritual community where God is worshipped to now live in a place where God is now worshipped? It's not like they could just go to the local synagogue at Moab. There was no such thing, a local synagogue at Moab. See, Elimelech doesn't even seem to consider how this decision might impact his children and their spiritual development, the friends that they grow up with, the influences they encounter. Both of his sons ended up marrying Moabite women who worshipped other gods. And how might that impact his grandchildren and the spiritual legacy that Elimelech would leave? And what about his wife, Naomi? How would a move to Moab impact her experience of community and security? Leaving behind her heritage and her relationships and her support system, should something ever happen to him, she would be all alone. And that's exactly what we see happened. She was all alone. See, Elimelech didn't think through the impact of his decision very well. He was only looking at it through a very narrow lens. What makes the most sense, practically speaking? In other words, how do we get food? How do we get food? And because he was only thinking about this decision from a very narrow perspective, it clouded his ability to evaluate all these other significant factors, like how will this impact our family spiritually? How will this impact our family relationally? See, what Elimelech seems to be lacking here is spiritual wisdom. He is lacking spiritual wisdom, the wisdom that comes from God. The Apostle Paul, jumping to the New Testament real quickly, in Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul prays that God will give to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation. See, the Holy Spirit of God is a dispenser of God's wisdom, which we desperately need if we want to walk in God's will and we want to walk in God's blessing. However, the reality is we often don't make decisions based on spiritual wisdom. Instead, we use the wisdom of the world, where decisions are based on things like logic and expedience and immediacy. And practicality, what makes the most sense financially, right? What makes the most sense functionally? Now, these things are not necessarily evil or bad. They can be helpful information to have when we're making a decision. But here, here's, here, here's the concern for many of us as followers of Jesus, for many of us, worldly wisdom is really the only wisdom we seek. What, what, what makes the most sense in this decision? What makes the most sense? What's the most reasonable thing to do? What's the most logical, expedient, efficient thing to do? And when, like Elimelech, we are singularly focused on following that path, we may well find ourselves missing out on blessings that God has for us, missing out on the path that God has for us. In the book of James, we read in the New Testament again, the book of James, verse um, five of chapter one, if any of you lacks wisdom wisdom, you should ask God 
who gives generously to all without finding fault. See, God longs to give us wisdom. He is eager to give us wisdom and to do so generously, James says. He's not withholding it, just kind of parsing out, you know. No, he's giving it generously. And here's, here's the deal about God's wisdom. When we walk in God's wisdom, when we walk in spiritual wisdom, it creates an atmosphere of blessing. It creates an atmosphere of blessing. Now, I'm not talking about name it, claim it stuff. I'm not talking about this formula, A plus B always equals C. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is what's described in the book of Proverbs in the Bible. How when we walk in spiritual wisdom, making choices based upon God's perspective and wisdom, when we walk in that, it actually results in an experience of blessing in our lives. And when we don't walk in spiritual wisdom, we miss out on some of these blessings that God has in store for us. We may even open the door for some negative influences in our lives when we don't walk in wisdom, in spiritual wisdom. Now, Elimelech is an example of this. So it's interesting that in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, the writer says that Elimelech and his family went to sojourn. That's the actual word. They went to sojourn in Moab. That word means a temporary stay, right? To sojourn means a temporary stay. We're just going to get some food, hang out for a little while, enough to get some food, and then we'll come back. But they didn't come back, right? They stayed there 10 years they got pulled into this godless culture, which is exactly what can happen to us when we start making decisions based upon the world's values rather than God's values. I mean, how many of us can think of decisions we made on expedience or on what made the most sense financially, and we ended up getting stuck in a situation that was not good? It was not good for us spiritually. Our choices matter. Our choices matter. And when we're basing our decisions strictly on the values and perspective of the world, i.e. what makes the most sense, we, we will often miss the wisdom that God wants to give us. And as a result, we will miss the blessings that God wants to fill our lives with. So how do we, how do we obtain this spiritual wisdom? Well, James just, or just read this. James told us, we ask, we seek. We knock, we spend time in God's word, we listen to the Holy Spirit. That's how we get spiritual wisdom. Okay, so let me just ask the obvious question here. When you and I, when, when you and I are facing decisions, what role does spiritual wisdom play in that? When we're needing to make a decision, what role does spiritual wisdom play in that? Or, or let me ask this another way. Do you pray about whether or not you should buy a particular car? Or do we just assume we should because we can afford the payment and it's the car we want? Do, do we earnestly pray about business ventures that we're considering? Do, do we earnestly pray about who we should date? Or do we just say yes because they're hot or whatever? Uh, uh, do, do we earnestly pray about who we should marry? Or do we just assume this is the person because we've been dating so long and everyone says we're a perfect couple? But what does God say? What does God say? Does he want you to pay attention to that check in your spirit? Does he want you to pay attention to the concerns you have about this person's character or their anger issues or how they treat you? I mean, how often are our decisions based solely upon what makes sense 
oh, this is the logical next step. What, what, how many of our decisions just based totally on what makes sense or on what other people think, you know, or rather than an earnest seeking of the Lord for his wisdom. Now, obviously, getting, getting input from people you trust is incredibly important, um, and it, but even people we trust may not be hearing clearly from God. Even people we trust may not be hearing clearly from God, which is why the onus is on us to seek the Lord for his wisdom and then to follow where he leads. A friend of mine told me about how a while back he, he and his wife were not doing well. Um, and, and it was primarily due to some really harmful, negative things that she was doing in this relationship, in their relationship. And because of that, he and his wife were separated. They were separated. Now, in the midst of all of this, he had multiple people in his life, people that he trusted, that told him, you just need to end this. You just need to end this. Um, you have every right and every biblical reason, you know, biblically speaking, you have every right to end this marriage. That's what people were telling him, people he trusted, but he just didn't feel settled about it. He didn't feel settled about it. So he, he just earnestly sought the Lord for God's wisdom. So he started a multiple day fast, multiple day fasts, go without food, just seeking the Lord for multiple days. On the 12th day of his fast, his wife called him up in the middle of the night, middle of the night, she calls him up and she says, I see what I've been doing and I am so sorry for the hurt that I have caused. I am so sorry. That was a turning point, but he would have missed it if he hadn't sought the Lord for spiritual wisdom. So here, here's another example. Um, our new worship uh, director, Rocky Martinez, uh, shared with me about how two months ago, just two months ago, he was in Arizona without a job and debts were piling up. And what made the most sense for him was to move back to Texas to be with his, near his family. And everyone was saying, you just got to come back to Texas, be near family. That makes the most sense. Everyone was saying that. But he saw, as he sought the Lord about this, he just didn't feel this release from Arizona. He didn't feel like he was supposed to move from Arizona to Texas. And so his friends thought he was crazy for his friends and family, thought he was crazy for staying there. But he just kept following the Lord and God kept providing financially, kept providing miraculously financially. Now, while all that was going on, I was sitting in my office in Greeley wondering why I hadn't heard back from this guy named Rocky after we had reached out to him. We were really interested. We reached, you know, he had contacted us. We contacted him back, sent him a questionnaire, and we never heard back from him. And so I felt this prompting in my spirit to email him again, which didn't make sense either because he hadn't responded. And all of a sudden team thought, he's just not interested, right? He's pursuing other things. And so protocol would say, now we're not going to follow up. He hasn't even responded to us. So just leave it. But I just felt this to reach out against protocol and wisdom and all that stuff. And I did. So I, so I did. I just emailed him. It turns out he was very interested in our position, but he hadn't received, for whatever reason, hadn't received the emails that we were sending him expressing interest. So I am so thankful that I listened to that prompting against my better judgment. And I'm so thankful Rocky listened to God's spirit on his end because those things enabled this connection to happen, which we are all super excited about, right? We need God's wisdom. Maybe we're supposed to buy this house, but maybe not. Maybe we're supposed to take this job, 
but maybe not. Just because, oh, it's $10,000 more. Oh, of course we would do this out because, you know, do we know for sure? We don't know for sure. And if we just assume, oh, it's an open door, so we always go through open doors. I don't know. Sometimes we're supposed to beat on a door that's closed in order for it to open. So we, 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 we shouldn't just assume, oh, an open door means, obviously, and a closed door means. We need the Lord's wisdom, right? We need God's wisdom. You know, what, what makes total sense from the world's perspective, what is the most practical, logical decision from everyone else's perspective may not be the choice that God wants us to make. It may not make sense from everyone else around the, the, the choice God wants us to make. The, the question is here, are we willing to seek the Lord earnestly and listen to his voice so that we're following him even when it makes no sense to the people around us? Spiritual wisdom. We desperately need it. Spiritual wisdom. Which leads to the second element that was missing from Elimelech's decision-making process. And that is what I would call resolute trust. Resolute trust trust. It's ironic and I think very intentional. It's, it's, it's got to be intentional on the part of the author to let us know that this man's name was Elimelech. Because in that culture, names were very significant. They kind of spoke of a person's destiny, right? Their name was very significant. Elimelech's name means God is king. God is king. And yet Elimelech is not living that way. He is not trusting in God's provision. No, he's trying to figure out a solution to this problem. Elimelech is taking matters into his own hands, right? He's trying to fix this situation, but he is not seeking God in the process. He's not seeking God in this process. Now, there's another name in this story. In the verses we've already read, there's another name in this story that is also very significant. And that is the name of the town that Elimelech and his family were initially living in. What was the name of that town? Bethlehem. You know what the name Bethlehem means? House of bread. House of bread. So Elimelech, whose name means God is king, is living in this promised land that God has provided for his people in the city that is called the house of bread. And yet he decides to uproot his family and take them to a place that is out of the promised land, a place where people do not worship his God, where they do not trust in God. See, I think the author, in a very subtle and yet very effective way, is exposing a huge deficiency in Elimelech's decision. It was not a decision to seek God and to trust God's provision in the midst of this difficulty. No, it was a decision to take control. It was a decision to take control and find an immediate fix. See, so often our refusal to seek God is ultimately about control. Ultimately about control. We want to make the decision, honestly. We don't want God to make this business decision. We don't want God to make the decision about whether we should buy this car. We want to make that. We want to make the decision. We want to control the outcome. But God invites us to a completely different way of living, which is described so powerfully in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Would, would you read this out loud with me? Let's read this passage together. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. 
in all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. I mean, what a great verse, amazing verse, but is that how we live? Is that how we live? Often the way I live is trust in my own understanding Right? In all my ways, acknowledge me, right? And, and trust in my own understanding, not in the Lord. See, I want to make a decision based on what seems to be the safest route, what seems to be the logical choice, the choice that will fix this problem in the quickest way. But what if that's not the choice God wants me to make? What if that's not the choice God wants me to make? In fact, here's another way to ask that What do I miss? What do we miss? When we stop trusting in God and instead lean on our own understanding, what are we missing? Elimelech missed an opportunity to see God come through in amazing ways. I mean, we, we discover later in Ruth that the people there didn't starve to death. God provided for them. But Elimelech and his family missed the opportunity to see that happen. They missed the opportunity to see God come through in an amazing way. He missed the opportunity to trust God to keep his promises, to provide bread in a city God named the house of bread. See, what do we miss? What do we miss when we choose to lean on our own understanding and do the most logical, practical thing? What do we miss? What, what do we miss when we choose to do the choice that just makes, it makes the most sense financially, it makes the most sense practically, whatever. What, what, do we, what do we miss when we fail to seek the Lord for his wisdom in that process? What opportunities, what adventures, what blessings do we miss? See, God invites us into this adventure, this life of total dependence and trust. And folks, it is not always the safest route. It's not always the most comfortable route. It's not always the most logical route. But God's never really been into safety and comfort that much. Right? He's good. Right? And we can trust him, but he's never been to, into safety and comfort. He's always calling his people, step out of the boat. Abraham, I want you to go. I'm not going to tell you where, but I just want you to leave and go to this other place. See, God's interested in something else, not our safety, not our comfort. He's interested in something else. Author Brennan Manning, in his book, Ruthless Trust, he, he writes about a conversation he had with a kind of a spiritual director that he had met with for years, this person he respected a ton. And so he, he had this man alone, and they were talking about spiritual things. And so he asked this sage, this person with all his wisdom, he said, hey, how would you define the Christian life in a single sentence? How would you define the Christian life in a single sentence? And this man said, Brennan, I can define it in a single word. Trust. Trust. He is absolutely right. <laughs> the entire Christian life can be summarized in that particular word because that's what God is after. That's what he wants from you and me more than anything else. He wants us to trust him enough to follow him wherever he's leading. And when we do that, blessings result. Blessings result, which is what we see next in this story. Look with me at verse 6, Ruth 1 
when Naomi heard in Moab, she's still in Moab, but when she heard that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them in Bethlehem, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. See, even in this place of absolute devastation caused by Elimelech's lack of trust and wisdom, Naomi's just left with all these pieces, right, and the devastation. Even in that place of devastation, there's still an opportunity for Naomi to return home, to return to this place of God's provision and blessing. And that way, that way home, that way is found through exercising spiritual wisdom and trust, which is exactly what Naomi does. It's exactly what she demonstrates. She prepares to return to the land, to, to return to the place in which she had experienced blessings before. And as we're going to see in the weeks to come, God is going to pour out amazing blessings upon her. So here's the good news. Even if we have made bad decisions in the past, or we've been the recipient of bad decisions other people have made, right? It is never too late. It is not too late to exercise spiritual wisdom and to trust in the goodness and the purposes of God. He wants to lead us into a life of blessing. But that life requires us to seek his wisdom and to trust his character. That's what he's asking for. To seek his wisdom and to trust his character. All right, let's pray together. So Holy Spirit, we invite you right now. We've looked into your word. Our hearts are attentive and open to you. Now would you specifically apply certain things that you want us to hear and respond to? So I want to encourage you here, each one of us here, think about a decision maybe that you're you're facing. And what kind of wisdom, what kind of wisdom it is you're seeking? Is it the wisdom of the world? Oh, this is a no-brainer. This makes so much sense financially. It makes so much sense um, logically and whatever. Or are you willing to seek the Lord and seek him for spiritual wisdom and let him lead you. Is, is your hand open in this decision and these decisions that you and I face? So just take a moment in the quiet of your heart. If God is stirring in you a particular area, a particular decision you're making or whatever, would you ask him for spiritual wisdom? He promises to give it. Just ask him in the quiet of your heart. Just ask him for wisdom. And if there's a struggle for us, probably for all of us on these kinds of things to instinctively 
not seek the Lord, is that a reflection of our own desire to be in control rather than to surrender control to him and to trust him? And so, Lord, I want to pray, Jesus, I want to pray for each one of us. You would help us trust in you with all of our heart and to lean not on our own understanding rather than the other way around that we've just kind of so often we live, we trust in our own understanding rather than leaning upon you. So I pray for that in our hearts. Would you take us deeper in this life of childlike trust in you? And I thank you, I thank you for the adventure that you're inviting us into. When we're not going to choose the safest route, we're not going to choose the most irrational, necessarily the most reasonable, whatever, not necessarily. We're going we're gonna to seek you. And it may be that route, you may be saying, absolutely, buy this or do that. But you may also be saying, no, I want you to trust me. I want you to do this. <laughs> So I pray for any of us here who are in that place of, oh man, help me trust you in this. So I just pray for deepening trust and that we, we would be excited about the adventure that you're inviting us to experience. So thank you for that, Lord. And now I thank you, God, that we have this opportunity. We've heard your word and now we're, we're praying some. We have the opportunity to worship you and to respond with singing or praying or continuing just to think about some of the things that the decisions we're facing or whatever. So we just invite you into this place as we respond now to you. Set us free to do that. So why don't we stand as we transition into this continued response. If you want to sit in at some point, totally cool. You want to kneel somewhere, totally fine. So set us free to worship you, God. We love you. We want to follow you. We praise you.